MSW Media. This week, Special Counsel Robert Mueller made his first public statement since his appointment. In the statement, he highlighted parts of his report that had been distorted by Attorney General Bill Barr. Mueller chose his words carefully, but at one point, he seemed to suggest that the ball was now in Congress's court. Nonetheless, Mueller's cautious statements frustrated some Democrats who wanted him to speak more directly. Mueller expressed his desire not to testify before Congress at all. What should we make of Mueller's statement? Why didn't he go beyond his report? And what will happen next? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. You know, Patty, I have to say, it was really something to see Robert Mueller up there after all this time. It was so unexpected, too, because I we didn't hear about this till what, 30 minutes, an hour or so before he was go, supposed to go up there? Renato, I heard about it after it happened. I, uh, as you know, I work overnights, and sometimes I don't go to bed till about 5 or 6 in the morning. <laughs> so I woke up to people tweeting me, here it comes, or texting, and uh, I yeah, I, I kind of had to watch the aftermath of it. And I, But I have to ask you, Renato, as somebody who knows much more about this than most of us do, how is it, and, and folks ask you on this on Twitter, and I, I kind of understand the answer, even Newt Gingrich tweeted about this, which was when Ken Starr filed his report, he said that uh, Clinton was guilty 11 times. Uh, can you explain the distinction between Ken Starr's investigation and what, uh, what Mueller was doing? That's a great question. I know one of our listeners mentioned that as well. You know, first of all, Ken Starr was an independent counsel, not a special counsel. Uh, he was appointed pursuant to a statute that has since expired that allowed him to have an independence from the entire executive branch. So he could just issue a report on his own, uh, issue it directly to Congress and say whatever he wanted. That said, I don't think that fully explains what happened. You know, Ken Starr went out of his way. I reread the Starr report recently, uh, right after the Mueller report came out. And I was struck by how Ken Starr wrote it as if it was a a charging document. In other words, he had count one, count two, count three, and really? was saying, here's the offenses. And he was basically telling Congress, here's what you could charge. Here's what you should charge. Um, and in fact, Congress you know, turned around and did just or the House did just that. That was controlled by Republicans at the time. Mueller took a much more careful and measured approach. And it's interesting. You know, Mueller throughout this investigation has actually been attacked publicly at times by Ken Starr, who has you know, it's said that, you know, Mueller is going outside the lines or this and that. Oh, and really? really? What you see, yeah, it's kind of ironic, right? <laughs> a little hubris there. Yeah, but what, you know, I think you could really see just by looking at the documents of those of those two men, what I see is with Ken Starr, somebody who's trying to advocate and make a case. It's a persuasive document trying to argue for the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And what Robert Mueller's document looks like to me from reading it is a document that is very careful and thoughtful and is trying to lay things out in a way 
that will stand the test of time. And he doesn't, he very much doesn't have an agenda. What, what I would say is from reading that document, what I got out of it as a lawyer and as an experienced person who had been a prosecutor for a long time is I got a sense of respect from the man. And to me, the document commands respect. I don't know Robert Mueller personally, but that document is worthy of respect, the amount of care and thought that went into that document. Did you learn anything new from the press conference today? Was there anything that, uh, that you didn't know prior to his statements? Great question. Very little is the answer. And what, what I learned today was he doesn't want to testify uh, probably because he doesn't want to become a pinata and a partisan gamer, doesn't want to seem like he's in the middle of it. He thinks the report should speak for itself, and maybe it should, but I do think, I disagree with him here, I think that just like uh, the Justice Department has press conferences after an indictment that where they kind of repeat what's in the indictment, I don't see any reason why he can't get up there and make statements that are essentially from his report. Also, I think you could you could glean a lot or infer a lot from the things that he chose to stress. I think it seemed to me like he thought that the uh, Russian interference and attack on our election was under-emphasized, under-reported, that people were not focusing on that enough. He thought that was important. It also seemed to me that he thought that certain of his his conclusions and findings had been distorted, one of which was um, his finding that, or, he, you know, his findings about obstruction of justice. He clearly seemed to want to correct the record about why he did not reach a prosecutorial decision on that. Isn't it fascinating how quickly the response was of like, see, we didn't learn anything new because essentially we're, we're saying that. But I think the statement he made about if I was confident that no crime was committed, is that what he said? I would have mm -hmm. said so. Exactly. Which, mm -hmm. which is such a, you know, to say, I mean, it, it, someone was tweeting at you about how basically he was using double negatives to make an affirmative in certain ways. And what we, you know, what people want is a, a clear cut, definitive statement. And that, that was not what they, if, if, if it was clear cut, I don't think we would be tearing it apart the way we are today, including the president, of course. Exactly. I mean, and that is really that what you just expressed, Patty, is why I invited our our current guests on. And that's why I'm, I, I want to kind of orient the entire podcast around that because what, our guest today is Garrett Graff, who is a very distinguished journalist, a historian. He's written on a variety of subjects and he's written multiple books, but one book in particular he wrote is called The Threat Matrix, Inside Robert Mueller's FBI and the War on Global Terror. And he literally wrote a book that was a biography of Robert Mueller and his time at the FBI. He spent years studying Robert Mueller in his life. And I think he is somebody that can help us get a perspective from Robert Mueller as a, as a human being. Great. And I smell sequel. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Well, let's bring in Garrett Graff. Thank you for joining us, Garrett. I really appreciate it. Oh, always a pleasure to talk with you. So you, you're somebody, obviously, who's taken a lot of time to, to study Bob Mueller. One thing I, I get the sense is that a lot of uh, the public doesn't have a good understanding of Robert Mueller, who he is and what he's all about. I was wondering if before we get into what happened uh, today, if we could talk a little bit about if you could give us a sense of some of the things people may not understand or may not know about Robert Mueller. Yeah, I, you know, I think this is someone whose biography has in many ways informed the person that you saw uh, take the stage at the Justice Department this week. Um, it, and one of the things that I always try to point out 
is, you know, Mueller has had this 50-year career in public service, beginning immediately after college when he enlisted in the Marines, volunteered to go to Vietnam, volunteered to be an infantry uh, platoon commander, um, graduated from the Army Ranger School, um, graduated from Army Jump School, received a Bronze Star with Valor for leading his troops, leading his Marines in combat, received the Purple Heart uh, after he was shot himself in Vietnam. And that he's always talked about that experience as actually the hardest thing that he's ever done, Um, that nothing will ever compare to the stress of leading men in combat. And that this was true even when he was in his next hardest job, uh, being FBI director in the hours, days, weeks, months, and years after 9-11, when, remember, he had started as FBI director on September 4th, 2001 was sitting on the morning of Tuesday, September the 11th, in his first briefing on Al-Qaeda and the bombing of the USS Cole at 8 a.m. that morning when it was interrupted with word of the Trade Center attack. And that Mueller, uh, even in all of that stress um, in leading the Bureau through the crucible of that sort of wrenching uh, post 9-11 uh, transformation into a uh, counterterrorism focused agency still always joked that this was, uh, you know, this was an easier job than leading men in Vietnam, as he would say, you know, this, uh, I'm still getting more sleep than I ever did in Vietnam. And so I think the thing that is really uh, sort of unimaginable to most of us. Um, is thinking about all of the stress that he has borne over the last two years, you know, being in the midst of this political circus, being, uh, you know, weighing these weighty questions about whether he would bring charges against the president, um, you know, tackling the Russian attack on the election. But really, uh, probably for Robert Mueller, this is only the third hardest job that he has ever had. And that, you know, in many ways, that the things that we, that the rest of us have been sort of stressed out about on his behalf, um, you know, it's not that they're necessarily easy for him, but that he's bringing this perspective of history and previous experience um, to the table that lets us, uh, that sort of makes it hard for us to even imagine, um, you know, what he's been thinking. You know, I got the sense when I was watching Robert Mueller today that he's someone who believes that his work in this investigation will stand the test of time. In other words, he's thinking of this on a historical scale. It's sort of like when, for to, to give uh, listeners a sense of things, it's almost like when you're seeing geologic time, when you're looking at the the yeah. uh, stone carvings, you're, you know, to, to the cliff that you're looking at, uh, your lifetime is but an instant. And I think to Robert Mueller, you know, he's less concerned about these news cycles than he is concerned about how, history will regard the the work that he did in this investigation. I I think that's absolutely right. And I think that that's, um, for instance, one of the reasons that we didn't see, you know, Mueller running through the streets during the 19 days uh, or whatever it uh, precisely was in between 
Barr's summary and the release of the full report um, that, you know, Mueller, we know, has objections to how uh, Barr summarized it. Um, We know that he feels like it was not accurately captured um, by Barr's remarks. Uh, But, you know, Bob Mueller is not worried about those 19 days. You know, Mueller is looking at this as how the U.S. will view him and his work and this moment in, you know, years or decades to come. So I've heard Renato talking about how prosecutors have a lot of power and they can choose to destroy someone's life if they wanted to, not that they would. My sense seems to be from what Renato is describing, what you're talking about, is that Mueller wanted to make sure he didn't somehow ruin the country. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important point in this, which is, and you know, Renato um, certainly understands this, and you probably even remember this, that you know, when prosecutors are sworn into the Justice Department, um, you know, the 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 training really underscores that your job is not to put people in jail. Your job is to do justice. And that that ethic and that duty is is right there in the name of the agency um, in a way that is, you know, unique uh, in, in many ways across government. And that I think that that's one of the things that Mueller probably struggled with in this is what was the way to do justice in this case, not to prosecute people, not to put people in jail, but what was the best way to do justice? And, and I think that that's partly where you see him sort of start to get tangled up in these questions of fairness, which seems sort of academic and legalistic to us in that, you know, Mueller's view is, well, I can't accuse the president of a crime if there's not a clear process that he could go through to clear his name if he's innocent. Um, You know, it's not up to me to allege a crime that's short of a formal indictment, and I can't bring a formal indictment because this is the president of the United States. And that, you know, I think from the outside, it's easy for us to sort of look at this as all hair splitting. Um, You know, I I saw um, one reference today to Bob Mueller as Hamlet uh, (laughs) in, you know, sort of, you know, will I, won't I? Um, But I don't think that that's I don't think that's fair. And I don't think that's really the way that Mueller uh, you know, I don't think anyone who looks at this report and understands the mentality that a prosecutor uh, so steeped in the system and so uh, fair and by the book as Mueller um, would look at this. That you know, I, I actually think that Mueller made a whole bunch of pretty clear decisions um, in, in this uh, in his report. And that, you know, he's come as far as he possibly can towards saying, you know, hey, guys, Congress, this is an impeachment referral. You guys have to pick up the baton and go from here. I've done everything that I can. Um, And that this sort of whole idea that just because he didn't 
bring charges means that there's no crime there, um, which is technically true when you are dealing with any other defendant in the country where, you know, a prosecutor's decision to decline to prosecute um, is, you know, the end of that question. Um, But I don't actually think that Mueller did decide to decline to prosecute uh, here. I think he's saying there's a framework that I must abide by as a rule follower in the Department of Justice myself. Um, And this is, uh, you know, I I can't charge the president myself. um, And that's up to Congress, which he's explicitly said in his Wednesday press conference was, you know, he went out of his way to say that there is a separate system for dealing with presidential malfeasance, and that's Congress, and that's impeachment. That, that's right. I, I have to say, from my perspective, what I heard today from Robert Mueller was actually a very pointed statement. This was him going as far as he was willing to go, and almost uncomfortably so. Uh, I think you, you were right, Patty, to point to um, you know, his extreme caution and sense of fair play, you know, prosecutors, I have seen circumstances where prosecutors abuse their extraordinary power. Uh, and that's why a great prosecutor, someone who shows restraint and fair play, that's what Robert Mueller was doing here today. And that's what he's done thus far. And for people like him or career prosecutors, I think that come who are you know, really people who are law enforcement uh, in and kind of have come through the Justice Department in that way, it can come naturally and there's a certain mentality to it. I, I didn't I don't know Robert Mueller personally, but I work for Pat Fitzgerald, who is cut from mm-hmm. very much the same cloth, a man who um, he has spent, you know, his life in public service and, you know, indicted Osama bin Laden and did, you know, all this organized crime uh, prosecutions in Southern District of New York before he took over the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Chicago uh, and handled um, the indictments of two different governors uh, from different parties. And for him, you know, he didn't want to be in the thick of politics. He didn't view himself as a political animal. You know, his instinct was to, to certainly be aggressive in, in your prosecutions, but to be measured and thoughtful and careful in, in, the, in the public statements that you made. Uh, and I think that the career prosecutors that I worked with all had that mentality and what I saw today was at times Robert Mueller dancing on the edge of that. You know, it one for example, when he made a statement about Barr, he he said he he did not he you know he believed that Barr's decision uh, to release the full report was made in good faith, but he did he was very clear clear to limit that just to that specific decision, and to to the public that 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 distinction is meaningless. But to me personally, what I saw was somebody carefully trying to say something positive about the attorney general and trying to defuse an issue, but very carefully circumscribing what he said. And to a careful observer, what I saw was somebody at times highlighting pieces of his report to try to correct um, misstatements and um, uh, sort of a misleading impression that had been left in the public by the attorney general. Renato, you raised Pat Fitzgerald there, and and I think that he's a fascinating sort of thought experiment in this that's been sort of rattling around in my brain over these last couple of weeks. Um, You know, obviously he has experience as a a special counsel type prosecutor himself with the Valerie Plame leak investigation. And I'm curious from having your, your working relationship with him, how do you think he would have 
uh, approached this differently. Um, because it's sort of my impression, and I know, uh, I, I don't know um, Fitzgerald, you know, anywhere near the way that I know Mueller's work and in, in his, uh, his approach, but he, uh, Fitzgerald strikes me as someone who is just as tenacious and thorough as Mueller, but potentially more aggressive. Um, and, and I sort of wonder, particularly in reading volume one of the Mueller report, you know, would Fitzgerald, for instance, have brought some overarching conspiracy charges in that part of the investigation that Mueller didn't feel that he had the evidence to support? Well, just like uh, Pat Fitzgerald or Bob Mueller, I'm going to be careful about speaking for Pat for suggesting that I could speak for Pat Fitzgerald. I think what I would say is, if we're doing a thought experiment, I think very few prosecutors would have done what Robert Mueller did in, in volume two. In other words, say, I cannot indict the president. And, so, and, and even though this man has tried to obstruct my investigation, is attacking me and my team personally, and... I know that there's ultimately going to be a political process impeachment that is going to determine what happens regarding uh, these charges. I am going to do nothing to tell Congress one way or the other my prosecutorial judgment on those questions. I think most prosecutors would have reached a judgment one way or the other on each of those episodes of obstruction. And so I, I don't know about Pat, but you know, I certainly think the vast majority of prosecutors and probably him as well would have reached some sort of judgment. I think what Robert Mueller chose to do there was an extraordinary act of restraint and fair play. And I don't want to, I don't want to criticize it because I don't want to ever criticize prosecutors for acting that way. I've just seen the opposite and it's too, um, it's, it's much worse, but it is something yep. that, that I think ultimately in this era of, disinformation allowed um, Barr to um, pervert that 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 finding in the, in the in the face of that bar left him to do something else. Now, in in as for volume one, which you were referring to a moment ago, you know, I don't really I don't see that as a close call in terms of com conspiracy. I don't really you know what, what I see actually is Mueller took pretty aggressive legal positions. In other words, you know, he was willing to bring charges on, you know, in terms of uh, conspiracy against the United States and, and campaign finance that I thought many prosecutors may have been concerned about in terms of potential legal risk, not because those charges have not been brought in quite that way before. Campaign finance mm -hmm. laws are a bit murky. So I could see some prosecutors wanting to find something more uh, conventional, that it, the ground that had been tread before. He was actually pretty aggressive in bringing the charges against the Russians. And I'm not so sure that, the, the, that it was as close of a call on volume one. Um, so I, it, it's sort of interesting. I think that Mueller was aggressive in bringing charges where there would have been no consequence for the country um, in terms of, you know, a potential uh, partisan battle and, and frankly, as to the Russians, other than the shell companies having expensive legal counsel, presumably paid for by the Russian government. There's been no legal challenge of those of those theories. But on the other, the issue of Trump, of Trump I think that 
it's clear to me that Mueller's team pulled some punches. I think another question that, you know, another inflection point is a lot of prosecutors would have been tempted to subpoena the president and tried to force him to testify. Those are the sort of decisions that I think will for, for, will be debated and questioned in the future. And, um, you know, there are some people who are arguing that Mueller's playing by a set of rules that don't that other people aren't playing by here. But I would just say that a lot of people in the Justice Department, the sort of people that we would want to have conducting this investigation, you know, like a Pat Fitzgerald or other people who are longtime law enforcement types would have that same orientation. So if I can uh, continue to play the interviewer on your own podcast. Um, <laughs> so I have uh, so one of the things so that question of why Mueller didn't subpoena the president uh, uh, and didn't really push for the president's testimony, uh, I think remains one of the most interesting uh, and, and pregnant questions that we have. Um, I have a, a theory which I um, am want to bounce off you and see what you think, which is I wonder whether Mueller's team decided not to pursue a a, a subpoena of the president precisely because they knew the president would lie and that, you know, the president lies about all things, big and small, meaningful or not. And if he was going to end up uh, testifying before Butler, he was certainly going to lie, and that that would have backed them into a corner then of having to bring a perjury charge. Um, at which point, the whole country would say, "Well, of course he was he committed perjury. We we all know that he lies. That's not you know is that the best you got?" And I think it, I, I wonder whether they sort of specifically did it to avoid the chance of having to bring a perjury charge. That's interesting. Well, of course, they couldn't have technically brought the charge in any event. But right, essentially said that he committed perjury. Um, I guess what I would say is, you know, Mueller seemed to go through a lot of hoops, jumped through a lot of hoops to get Trump to sit down for an interview. I don't think he would have tried to make all these accommodations and had these extensive negotiations with Trump's team if he didn't want Trump to sit down for that interview. The way that conversation, just as a side note, so everyone has the proper context, the way that would have gone if uh, Trump was anyone else and another just a regular criminal def- uh, subject of a criminal investigation, um, what would have happened is, he, you know, the, his attorney would have Mueller would have called tr- Trump's attorney and Trump's attorney would have said, we're, we're not going to we're not going to sit down. We're going to take the fifth. And uh, Mueller would have asked for that in writing and the person would have provided that in writing. And that would have been that. Um, But here, what I what I thought was going on was Mueller knew that what would happen is if you put if you subpoena Trump, there'd be a long legal battle would go through the courts. Potentially, there'd be a bad precedent that would be set. But even if it wasn't, um, even if if, you know, he won and eventually prevailed, then they would either take the fifth or, you know, essentially try to have it both ways and decline anyway um, to sit for an interview. Most likely take the fifth would be the only way he could get away with it. But he tried to obscure it, I think, publicly as to, you know, why he's doing it, say it's because it's a witch hunt. And essentially Trump would have, you know, succeeded in dragging the investigation on 
and he would accuse him of spending too much money, you know, create some sort of crisis out of it. And Mueller thought it wasn't a good idea to put the country through that. Now, that's just me reading into it. I mean, this is hyper speculation. I usually don't do this stuff. So you're getting me, Garrett, to, to say things that I ordinarily would not say because I think, think it's very speculative. But that's the, the best I can come up with. Mm-hmm. So let me let me ask this. A lot of people to, are wondering how it is. Why is it that Mueller was not more pointed in his? Why didn't he come out and say um, that Barr lied, that Barr misled people? Why is he trying to avoid a confrontation with the attorney general? What, what are your thoughts on that? I think at the end of the day, um, you know, Bob Mueller is an institutionalist. Um, you know, he is a, a company man, and his company is the Justice Department. Um, you know, I was uh, sitting there watching that press conference today, you know, thinking about watching him speak under that seal of the U.S. Department of Justice in the briefing room there, and thinking about, you know, all of the history that Bob Mueller himself has done under that seal, um, you know, standing at that same podium in that briefing room. Um, you know, he uh, he's announced mob prosecutions. He, uh, you know, helped lead the investigation of the bombing of Pan Am 103. You know, he spoke there in the days after 9-11. Um, you know, this is someone who has given the better part of 50 years to the Justice Department and has held, you know, almost every rank in the department in uh, except for the top one. Um, you know, he was an assistant U.S. attorney. He was the uh, acting U.S. attorney. He was a U.S. attorney. He was the head of the, he was the assistant attorney general for the criminal division. He was the acting deputy attorney general. In, in between there, he was another U.S. attorney again. He was the uh, line prosecutor again. He was the head of the homicide uh, team at the U.S. attorney's office in D.C. And he was FBI director for 12 years, the longest serving FBI director since J. Edgar Hoover himself. Um, And he has a long history uh, of serving attorneys general. And he has a long history of working with Barr. You know, he led the Pan Am 103 bombing investigation under Barr, uh, under George H.W. Bush's administration. You know, he and Barr worked together to prosecute the Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega. Um, You know, you saw a man today who was speaking at that podium probably for the last time in his life after, uh, you know, decades of service to the Justice Department and to being a prosecutor. And I think at the end of the day, um, to your point, uh, Mueller was actually quite pointed in his own way in many of his remarks. But it's just not his way to go out and have a public fight with someone. What were your thoughts as you watched him behind that podium in front of the DOJ symbol? What did you think when he said that the Russian interference in our election deserves the attention of every American? Because that seemed like a pretty profound moment. I think it was a very profound moment, and I think he it was um, when he said every American, I think what the real message that we should have heard was it deserves the attention of one American, um, and that 
it was a message to the president that this needs to be something that we take seriously as a country um, and that Congress needs to take this seriously. The president needs to take this seriously. And remember, this is a remark that's coming on the heels of sort of continuous reports about how the president uh, continues to downplay the Russian interference up to and including that New York Times report about two weeks ago that said that the DHS secretary wasn't even allowed to mention the Russian interference uh, to the president because of how it would upset him. Yeah, I thought that was shocking when I heard that news report. You know, I will say a lot of the questions from our listeners have been focused on the part of Mueller's uh, statement today where he talked about the Justice Department, the OLC policy against indicting a sitting president. You know, one thing I will say is there was definitely um, – there definitely appears to be a much more of a contradiction between Mueller and Barr than was even apparent before this, because Barr had essentially, when he was asked about that uh, by a reporter at his press conference announcing the his release of the redacted Mueller report, that he said, you know, that essentially he had a private conversation with Robert Mueller and that Mueller had told him that the DOJ policy really wasn't the driver in his, you know, his non-decision on obstruction. And Mueller made it crystal clear by repeating essentially what he said in his report that that was not the case today, a sort of after Barr's public comments. You know, I, I, I wonder about that, you know, you know, he eventually is going to be, I know he doesn't want to testify, but eventually he's going to be asked even more about that. What are your thoughts about, you know, his comments today along those lines and how, how you think that's going to play out? Yeah, I, I think that's a good to zero in on, um, and I think that uh, the difference, you know, you you probably saw there was this sort of deeply incomprehensible joint statement put out by Barr's office and the special counsel's office late Wednesday. Um, that laid out the two statements and said there was no difference between them and they're not in conflict. And uh, the statement sort of just doesn't make sense in the context of anyone who actually watched those two comments be made, that there, there might be a very strict and narrow legal uh, point that they are accurate, but certainly no one who watched Barr uh, interpreted what Mueller himself said today. And I, I think that there, I think that the fact that Mueller spent so much of his remarks making clear that he felt bound by that OLC opinion, that he felt that he was never in a position to charge the president, that he never considered charging the president, um, it, it is meaningful. You know, again, Mueller picked and chose his words very carefully to, uh, in his press conference. And the fact that he spent, you know, I think it was probably about a third of his total remarks making clear that it wasn't up to him whether the president committed a crime. Um, it, it is him saying, but really to Congress, 
hey, guys, this ball's in your court. I've done all the legwork. I've dressed this up in a silver platter. I've handed you 448 pages of evidence. Now you actually have to do something with it. You know, a number of our listeners, um, I think, are were frustrated by Robert Mueller not saying more, not doing more, not being coming out and and saying some of the things that they would like him to say about, you know, maybe the misrepresentations that have been made or what Congress should do next. How would you how would you respond to that? In other words, a lot of the people listening to this are going to wonder, why is Robert Mueller being so careful and cautious and measured and sticking within the four corners of his report? Um, I think because Mueller is a very careful four corners kind of person. Um, and he, um, you know, one of his aides said to me, um, you know, in, in contrast to someone like Mike Hayden, uh, who uh, was CIA director um, and NSA director during some of the period where Mueller was uh, FBI director that uh, Mike Hayden's made a real point of being aggressive and forward leaning in his approach and his memoir is called playing to the edges. Um, this aides, uh, to Mueller said to me that by contrast, Mueller was someone who always liked to stay one healthy stride inside the chalk lines. Yeah, I, I will. I say that I think from Robert Mueller's perspective, if he be became political or was seen to be political, then everyone would lose because then the process that he um, was going through, which the goal of which was to provide a fairly apolitical document that everyone could rely on, would would essentially have been undermined by himself. But isn't it possible? Absolutely. But isn't it possible that being definitive makes it apolitical as well? Whereas leaving it vague leaves it. A, I mean, I understand that he didn't want this to come down one side or the other, but that implies that somehow affirming a conclusion is political. Whereas I just think that there's a possibility where making a statement could be apolitical as well. Am I wrong about that? Anybody? No, I don't think so. And I and I think that that gets to the heart of sort of this question. Um, that Renato touched on of whether at the end of the day, Mueller is playing by a rule book that no one else is abiding by. Um, and, uh, you know, how, how does he sort of step forward in this apolitical nonpartisan role uh, as a investigative fact finder um, and say the things that need to be said, but without the, level of definitiveness that it needs in order to sort of break through in our, um, you know, in our modern media environment. One thing I should just mention is what we saw today was very much a typical DOJ press conference. In other words, the way DOJ press conferences typically operate is there's an indictment or some such, and then you put somebody up there you know, prosecutor X or, you know, supervising prosecutor Y. And that person goes up there and essentially says what's in the indictment or in the thing. And they just repeat those same things over and over again. And people take sound bites and make some of it, but it's just the same stuff that's already been said. It's such a contrast to what Barr did. One thing I do think that it shows you is what it should have looked like from the very beginning. This is the sort of statement we should have. And had. what you're also saying is that Comey ruined it for everybody. Well, Comey, did, I think showed <laughs> Comey showed what, what uh, the the avenue. I think 
in the danger of what would have happened if a prosecutor goes outside those that box. And I think Mueller wanted very much, you know, M- Trump can say what he wants, his supporters, Lou Dobbs, whoever can say whatever they want. But Mueller himself was going to operate within the lines and let history judge it to go back to what Garrett and I were talking about in the beginning. Right. Well, Garrett, I will tell you, it, this has been very enlightening for me. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to uh, chat with us. I, frankly, it was the most fun was when you were interrogating me. I'm not used to getting <laughs> such pointed questions. I get softballs on television. This is a good one. Duly noted. I'll make it harder on you, Renata. <laughs> Thank you very much. For My pleasure. What Thank an interesting you. day. Yes. Ain't no doubt. Thank Historic. you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 